Hello, I'm James King and welcome to Cinema Stories, the programme that doesn't just celebrate films, it's about the whole film-going experience. From the deluxe to the dowdy, from the massive to the miniature, each episode one guest presents their triple bill of Picture Palace Pearls. With me this week is film producer Stephen Woolley. He started in the industry as an usher at a North London cinema that we may well be talking about later. This eventually led to running his own in 1979, the legendary Scala, described by The Guardian as the king of repertory cinemas, showing everything from high art to the lowest trash. Palace Video and Palace Pictures followed in the early 80s, releasing films by the likes of David Lynch, Sam Raimi, the Coen brothers, and most famously Neil Jordan with whom Stephen has worked a number of times, including on Mona Lisa, The Crying Game and Interview with the Vampire. Recent productions with his company Number 9 Films include Carol, Their Finest and The Limehouse Golem, and this year Stephen and his partner Elizabeth Carlson were awarded a BAFTA for Outstanding British Contribution to Cinema. Stephen, welcome. Thank you. Lovely to see you. High Art and Lowest Trash. That's what they said you were showing when you were running the Scala Cinema. Is that something you agree with? And can you give us some examples? Yeah, no, I think it's been terribly complimentary. Um, <laughs> I, we, we used to show the John Waters films. Okay, uh, so Pink, that would be in the trash Pink Flamingos section. was the high art section. <laughs> um, when it comes down to trash, there were far worse things than Pink Flamingos. No, obviously, the Scala was born out of an idea of showing cinema that was not shown in other cinemas or, or was shown very rarely, we were trying to expand the on the idea of cinemas like the Electric and the National Film Theatre, the NFT, uh, which is now called the BFI South Bank, and give people a wider selection and also present cinema in a way that made it more accessible. It was a sort of cinema for movie buffs, but also a cinema that, celebrated by having event days the all-nighters were the thing that people remember so well because we would show all-night horror films or all-night judy gala movies it didn't it was no snobbishness at the scala we weren't trying to say this was the david cronenberg cinema or this was the david lynch cinema or this was the uh, lauren hardy cinema but we did lauren hardy days and we had animation days it was a cornucopia of of discovery for people who love movies, but it was never a one personality place because people created personalities. The cinema's personalities were created by its audience who would come to their films. And so the Kung Fu guys probably didn't come to the Cocteau Double Bills. Mm. And so the, the and, and I think in nineteen seventy nine when we did the Seven Days of Gay Movies it might have been one of the first gay film festivals ever in London, certainly. And that audience probably weren't the same audience coming to see the Clint Eastwood all-nighter that was going on, you know, the Sergio Leone movies that were happening on the Saturday night. So the audiences didn't always cross over. And so people had a different concept to what the Scala was. And I always think that was so refreshing that um, there was a place in London where you could go and enjoy cinema, enjoy the awe experience with your audience. And I think that comes to the point of your podcast and the point of talking about cinemas is that my memory of movies is often dictated by the place I saw the film. Absolutely, yeah. And it makes it very difficult when so many cinemas now are just boxes 
where the cinema projection is perfect, which, by the way, at the Scala it never was, and where you're having the same experience um, going in, where it's a f- now it's almost entirely faceless. You don't really come into human contact. You ring up, you book your tickets on phone, you get your credit card, you put it in the machine, you take the two tickets. There might be somebody tearing your tickets. I'm sure that will go soon enough. And then you go into the, the cinema, and it's a nondescript experience. And it's very different from when I was a kid growing up in London. I think from my doorstep in Islington, I was born in the pre-gentrified Islington of the late 50s. In my doorstep in Islington, we could walk to, I think, eight cinemas as a seven, eight-year-old. Uh, there's two Asoldos, which are both closed now. There was the ABC Holloway Road, the Odeon Holloway Road, the Odeon Angel, the Tolma, uh, which was down in Warren Street, and the uh, Rec Cinema, which was the closest, the notorious Rec Cinema. Well, this is actually your first choice, isn't it? Yeah. Well, the Rec Cinema was the cinema that we were told not to go to. (laughs) Right, okay. What was wrong with it? What, What was the problem? Well, the Rec Cinema's ticket prices were very low. And because, as I said, there were so many cinemas in the area, the Odeon would get what they called the first-run film. So in today's terms, that would be the Marvel film. And in those days, it would be a Bond film. Cinema like the Rex wouldn't be able to get those movies for a good few months after they'd already played the circuit, if at all. So the Rex had to contend themselves with showing very old films in double bills. But when I say very old films, I mean if I think about growing up in the 60s, films that were from the 50s. And they would be double bills of Godzilla movies or Centrinian's films or I always remember The Crimson Pirate, which was in Technicolor. Some of them would be in colour, often they'd be black and white. And they would be not very good prints, very cheap to get in. And people would go literally to sleep there. <laughs> um, so my, it, was, it was somewhere you could go for a bit of warmth and a bit of I think the term flip it right, was okay. actually invented by the Rex <laughs> no it wasn't that bad I don't think I remember anybody ever actually getting fleas there but uh, it, it didn't smell too good and I remember sixpence was the which is two and a half P now sixpence was the price of a ticket so I would go sometimes with my cousin Robert and sometimes on my own, even though my mum used to say, you can't go there because tramps will wee on you. That always stayed in my mind. I, I can imagine. Tramps yeah. will wee. Well, I never knew what it, why would tramps wee on you when the toilet was just there? I would sit in the cinema. This would be like, there because there would often be a few tramps and they would be quite smelly and you'd just sit away and you wouldn't sit next to them, you know. But they often sat in the front row anyway and the t- loo was just... I think I was about 34 when I worked out what she meant. Um, <laughs> tramps will win you. Oh, I get it. That's what my mum was saying. Oh, my God. Anyway, so we would go, avoid the tramps, and then watch. Now, my favourite movies there were things like the uh, Dino Dorentes films that he made with Kirk Douglas and Steve Reeves, um, Hercules and Cyclops and Ulysses and all the Greek myths, mm. what, they, what they later I learned were called the Sandals and Sand movies. Yeah. And they would be appalling prints because everything they showed there was more or less used certificate. They had occasionally had a certificate films, but they were mainly used certificate, which is why you'd go there as a kid. And so the jumps and cuts would be continued throughout. So you'd have people walking into a room and mid-sentence would jump to another scene. 
Jason and Argonauts would, of course, be the creme de la creme of those kind of movies. Um, but they would be of that ilk. And they would almost be like Fellini films, really. They would sort of be very beautifully, you know, shot in some sort of cinemascope colour and would be a way of dreamily going into another world. And I think I must have, even at that very young age, lost the sense of narrative being that important, that after a while you follow a story sure, and then the story seems to have become something of the distant past where all the characters who seem to be there don't seem to have existed anymore as if you've actually gone into another film. And then by the end of it, there is a kind of rude awakening of Upper Street and Islington. And so the memory of the film was often even better than the experience of watching it because you're often very confused. Islington is very different to Jason and the Argonauts. Yeah. Well, the world, the world of, of those myths was something that I remember that. Crimson Pirate, I remember, as being a real favourite. It was a Burt Lancaster, a, a Siodmak film. But that was such a brilliant swashbuckling movie. I remember swashbuckling all the way home after watching The Crimson Pirate. They were films that were very inspirational and a way of spending three and a half hours out of the rain, very cheap way of entertaining yourself. But um, it was something that David Hockney said about going to the cinema when he was a kid, because we used to bunk into the wrecks. There was a door at the back. Um, if I went with my cousins, and I often didn't go with my cousins, so I'd often have to pay. But if I went with a bunch of people, you could buy one ticket and then go to the back of the cinema and then open the door. And then three or four of you could run in. So you'd get in for the price of one ticket. But David Hockney said he always used to bunk into his local cinema with his older brothers or older siblings and friends. And they would open the door and they'd all sneak in. And they'd always sit in the front row because that was the quickest place to go because before to hide. And he said that when he was a kid, it was only when he was able to afford to buy a ticket that he realised that cinema screens had sides because he would always sit there and the enormity of the screen would yeah. just envelop him. So it seemed to be endless. And I remember thinking, gosh, that's exactly what I felt about going to cinema when I was a kid, that you are so sucked into the film that your own world just suddenly disappears and you are in that world of whatever it might be, that mad Italian comedy or that crazy American war movie or whatever the world is, the world of that world that you're in for that hour and a half is the world that you've accepted. And I think that, that cinema stayed with me as a kid growing up. And of course, after a while, I was able to afford to go and see proper films and discover places like the BFI, South Bank or the NFT as it was then. Um, but one day I remember being on the bus coming to school because I went to school at the Angel Islington and we'd moved by now to um, Archway. And suddenly Rex was transformed. There was this big sign saying, Screen on the Green, Islington. And they were showing The Graduate and The Thomas Crown Affair, grown-up films. Classy films. Yeah, grown-up AA films. But they still had the same problem. They couldn't show the mainstream films. But somebody somewhere, and it turned out to be Romaine Hart, had decided that what they would do is renovate the cinema, give it a bit of a, uh, get rid of the sleeping people in the cinema who were desperate to wee on you and <laughs> do something else and show this American independent cinema and American films, um, but double bill them in smart ways. 
And then they also did something which at that time was, was interesting, was that they started showing late night double bills on Friday and Saturdays, occasional all-nighters, Marx Brothers mainly, or Humphrey Bogart films. But they did these double bills on Fridays and Saturdays of European art cinema, so Chabrol, God, in fact, I saw my first Chabrol at the screen in the green and when I became a member of their club. Um, he had some sort of piece of paper, you know, this weird book, and I was far too young to join the club, but nobody seemed to notice. I had very long hair then, so perhaps, and I was on my own, so perhaps they didn't care. Stephen, you have long hair now. Well, longish hair now, but I had very <laughs> long hair there when I was a 15-year-old, I promise you. So suddenly the cinema was showing kind of hip films. Hip to me... Because when I first saw my first Chabrol, I thought, oh my God, this universe is really something else. And then they showed um, quite outrageous films as well, um, like Quiet Days in Clichy, and Clichy, which is a Henry Miller adaptation, and all sorts of very odd uh, Tarkovsky films and you know films like Solaris. And I was being introduced to this kind of other world of cinema, which was a sort of natural extension of those old... 1950s and 1960s Italian odd, you know, sort of Greek myth movies, which where the narrative was hard to detect, where you had to kind of really be with it, you know, stay with the movie. You know, you couldn't just go off for five minutes and come back and expect to know what's going on. And so the screen on the green um, became very, very important for me. And I was, I remember because I was just at the Angel Islington bunking off one afternoon from school to go and see The Producers, which is a film I'd heard all about. And I think I was probably, you know, I, I was on my own. I generally went to cinema on my own by then because I could never find anyone who would want to go and see as many films. But I remember watching The Producers on my own, thinking it was genuinely one of the funniest films I'd ever seen and thinking Gene Wilder was absolutely a genius. So by now, late 60s, sorry, early 70s by now, I loved um, The Screen of the Green because they just introduced me to a whole other world of uh, movies. Um, I think I saw my first Kurosawa film there as well. Rashomon and Sanjuro were a double bill before I'd seen Magnificent Seven. So it was a phenomenally inspiring cinema. And then when I, I left school a little bit earlier than I expected and lived in uh, Highbury in a squat with my girlfriend, and there was a job advertised as an usher for the screen in the green, and I got the job. That was... For me, this was the dream. I had actually got a job working in what was previously the Rec Cinema, and now I become the Screen of the Green. And I remember that week, it was a double bill of Dillinger with Warren Oates and Bonnie and Clyde, They'd, with the original 1968 Bonnie and Clyde. And I got to watch them for free, standing at the back of the cinema. And all I had to do was tear people's tickets as they came in. And I thought, this is it. I'm in the film business. This is it. I'm being employed to watch movies. And I was, think, probably the happiest that I've ever been <laughs> for, a, for a brief few days before, they, before I discovered there were other things to be doing in cinemas, like selling ice creams and curas. And the thing about the screen and the green is that we are only able to show those kind of movies because we sold X amount of sweets and, and, and confectionery. And so I understood the fury when the Kioras weren't put at the top of the fridge and the Kiora man came round and put the new Kioras at the back and then every now and again Romain would find the Kioras at the bottom of the fridge 
at the point of explosion. And one day she came into the foyer and threw a whole crate of kioras because somebody hadn't put them to the top. And I, they all burst. They were, it was like, very strangely, Fassbinder had been there that week to, to present his new movie and had been lounging on the, in the very tiny foyer, um, very drunk, smoking a cigarette, as people did in those days, looking like he was about to fall over. And at the point where he was standing, suddenly these kiora, and I just thought, oh my God, Fassbinder had just been there, and now there's just these yellow piss marks all over the wall. <laughs> and what would he have thought of our cinema? He'd probably have loved it, actually. Um, but yeah, that anger that she had that day really informed me when I ran my own cinema about how important it was and how important it is, and, and it still is now, of course, for our industry. That's really what's kept, what kept cinemas open even then, was, and even especially the hip of cinemas, was actually the concessions. That's, that's a very interesting point, actually, because um, I know that uh, producer Phil, who's here every week, um, has some questions for you about that very topic. So Rex Cinema, now known as the um, Screen, Screen of the Green in Islington, choice number one. Um, we'll move on to the next choice in a second, but first, Phil, with some questions about confectionery. Phil's popping around. It's, it's radio. <laughs> Atmos. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, potentially a very divisive topic, I think. Cinema snacks. Stephen's pouring tea. <laughs> that was another. I thought this was quite a nice sound effect. It's a lovely sound effect. Yeah, that is nice. Just clarifying what it was. Um, cinema snacks, a necessary evil. A necessary evil, you know. And I think that the choice of the kind of snacks, the screen in the green. I remember they had something that was unknown in those days called a flapjack. Now quite common. But in those days, it was a healthy food. It was like a health food Ooh, flapjack. Yes. It was something that you ate. You know, if you were, if you thought that you were, you wanted a better diet. But let's face it, it was the Maltesers that people really wanted. Well, that's the thing. There's a few that I remember from my local cinema in Bowness, which I always seem to shoehorn into every episode. It's the Royalty Cinema. If you've never been, do go. I don't work for them. I can remember Mint Poppets. They were a thing. Yeah, I'm Mint Poppets. They were quite small, actually. My, um, there was toffee ones as well. Toffee poppets. Oh, yeah, the toffee poppets I remember very well. Yeah, we, I don't think we sold those. Well, disappointed. How do you stand on the new kids on the block? Mixed, sweet and salted popcorn. Um, well, of course, we didn't even have popcorn in those days. We're talking about the late 70s. We just had butterkissed. Butterkissed was just sweet popcorn. I never quite understand how the salt got into the popcorn. Andy Engel, when he opened his cinema... Andy decided that they would advertise that they had no confectionery whatsoever and absolutely no drinks. They had a sign that said, no drinks, no sweets, no porn or something. It was very weird. Good to clarify. Yeah. I've got a couple more that I'll... Yeah, no, please, go for it. Rapid fire, throw at you. Capri Sun versus those... All I remember is these plastic things with foil on top. Yeah, Capri Sunburst. I remember those. We were... That's a little bit after my time, I'm afraid. I'm the the Kiora. uh, And the thing with Kioras, if they were damaged within the sell-by date, then you could change them back. So the thing you could do was to slightly break the side and then suck the Kiora out of the side through the plastic. We used to do that at school. (laughs) And then you could put them back and say, oh, this one arrived damaged. It's a tough life and running a cinema, I can tell you. The final thing I wanted to say was, um, if you had your top three cinema snacks, if you had to rate them well, in I, reverse order. Okay, we're talking about proper snacks here. I 
absolutely love the hot dogs at the Odeon. I just, I mean, if they, are we talking about sweet here or so? Or Either or. I, I, and what I really loved about the hot dogs was the mustard. They had something we didn't have here. We always had English mustard. That thing called Dijon was a thing of the future at that point. They were so great. Um, Butterkist, I also loved. And so I, in it too, Butterkist. Yeah, I yeah. think Butterkist was, was one I just absolutely loved. And actually, for some reason, I associate with cinemas and not with real life, was Cadbury's Fruit and Nut. Big bar Cadbury's Fruit and Nut. You know, those like slightly larger bars. Because didn't cinemas used to be the place before they got them in supermarkets, you could only get massive bars of chocolate yeah. at the cinema. It must be, because I always associate getting a big bar of Fruit and Nut and sharing it. Um, James, have we missed out any snacks very briefly that you remember? Well, the one that annoys me the most, I think, is the nachos. I, I don't understand the concept of, of no. giving a noisy snack at a cinema, a place where you're trying to reduce the noise from the audience. Somehow nachos just crept in there, didn't they? What yeah. was that about the nachos? Why, why did that happen one day? I don't know, but I don't think that society's been quite the same since. No, and they really it's not a thing you should eat in the cinema. No. I mean, let's face it, a Malteser is fairly acceptable if people suck them. But... <laughs> But, you know, the reality is that full-on meals in cinemas was never a very good idea. Um, we, and been, I, think, I think it was something that one should genuinely fight against. We've been talking a lot about cult films and cinemas that show cult all-nighters. And I think your second choice is one of those. We head to West LA for the New Art Cinema. That's a bit of a legendary place for cult movies, isn't it? John Waters well, and the like. Well, yeah, the New Art was an inspiration because I'd never been to America and I'd never been to the New Art cinema. Um, but they, the New Art, the programmes, put all of these films together in wonderful double bills. And whether it was Harold and Maud or... I mean, a lot of them American, but also a lot of French films like Godard and Truffaut and, you know, films that we didn't see in London, films that you were desperate to see and would never you knew you'd never be able to see them and yet here was this cinema showing these double bills but what was really important was the layout of the program and again the Scarlet Cinema was really basically based on the new art and a a cinema in, in called the Roxy in San Francisco and oddly I'd not been to either of those but they showed films like Eraserhead which I managed to get working with Romaine, actually Hart, which as a distributor, I managed to show at my cinema, David Lynch's first movie, Eraserhead, which for anyone who hasn't seen it as a black and white, almost avant-garde film, but would launch David Lynch's career, but it was only shown late night in America. Mm-hmm. The only cinema that ever showed Eraserhead during the day was the Scarlet Cinema. And David Lynch was shocked when he came to London <laughs> and said, oh my God, you're showing at three in the afternoon. What will people be thinking at three in the afternoon watching my movie? Get the school uh, crowd in. Yeah. <laughs> But the New Art was the cinema and the Roxy, which informed me about these other films, American Indies, obscure French, European cinema. And we were showing the kind of films, uh, like the John Waters films, that they were showing. And often I'd never seen the films. I just thought I must try and get these films because they're showing them there and because they must be. So it was a sort of recommendation to me. Ironically when I directed Stoned, the film I, um, that I made many years later, it premiered at the New Art. And I've got a very nice picture of myself standing under the, the New Art canopy, which says, um, because the Rolling Stones weren't happy with Stoned, it, the, the, they'd, somebody there cleverly put up on the canopy, 
Too Sick for Mick stoned <laughs> uh, which I was very proud of because it was the cinema that was such an inspiration for me yeah um, I suddenly had this new education and what I tried to do with the Scala was to bring some of that programming in as well so that three-hour film for instance the word is out set in San Francisco which is interviews with gay people from that time which was a crucially important film for the gay community so the new art really was a kind of I think a guiding light for me and later on, when I went, was able to go to the new art, both as a punter, I realised what a cool and lovely cinema it was. You know, it was it was the atmosphere. The, the, just, I think when people work in an environment like that, they realise that they are actually doing something which is pleasurable and also giving that pleasure over. You know, this, it's inspirational, isn't it? I mean, you're you're the living proof. That, well, that I, it's, I was it's absolutely, and and I think that that's part of when you go to a cinema. I mean, I hate to think that people who came to the Scala Cinema um, during all those years that we ran Scala and King's Cross and first, of course, in Tottenham Street and uh, off Charlotte Street, that people were kind to it. You know, there was a, a kind of sense of, yes, we're all freaks, aren't we? So mm. we see, the all-nighters weren't like that. You see, you would never meet anyone at an all-nighter at the Classic in, in 1974 in uh, Victoria that you'd ever want to speak to. Everybody seemed really weird very odd um but the weirdness and oddness at the scala was good you yeah. know it was like part and parcel of that thing that you are in an environment with people that like you are a little bit strange and like these films which often were very strange so i think that that celebration was for me started by studying the new art programs and looking at what they could do and it's still what, going strong the new art the new art still going I was there actually to see the Hal Ashby documentary about three months ago I was in LA and I thought <laughs> I wonder what the new art is showing and I wandered along to see a wonderful documentary about Hal Ashby I think it still does uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show every week as well every Friday night I think it is right, late okay. night so that idea of cinema and music cinema and events was something we also carried over onto the Scala which was an important factor um, when we, we would have the all-nighters at Scala, we'd also have bands playing, and it would be a, going for that younger audience, getting young people into coming to the cinema as a habit and watching movies was important, but was also part of the spirit of the Scala was music as well. So that rock and roll element was something that, that I learned very quickly from working at the Screen of the Green. And our final choice is a cinema that you have mentioned already, the National Film Theatre, or the BFI South Bank, as it's now known, again in London. I'm intrigued to know as to when you, when you first went well, to the National Film Theatre. Oddly, Theater. when I was at school, as, as I said, 14, 15, and after I sort of started to discover the screen in the green, there was a film course. And this film course um, was the, the course that introduced me to battleship potemkin and bergman's wild strawberries i can almost remember all of the films that they showed us in fact john borman's point blank was one of the films as well but the film course took us to various cinemas um because i would at that point i was still too young to be the to quite have understood how to get into the national film theater because it was a membership thing it cost an exorbitant amount to join in my mind of course and i only look at some of the films in time out and think oh that's interesting they dragged us off to these different locations around like every other week. And then the following weekend, we'd talk about the films or write about them. And we went to see Wild Strawberries at the National Film Theatre. For those of you who are younger than I am, we saw most of the Lauren Hardy films, Chaplin films, Buster Keaton films on television. And Michael Benteen, who was in a group of comedians called The Goons, would present 
my uh, Buster Keaton every Friday night. Yeah. And before the film, these funny doors would open. They were really weirdly designed. And the film would be revealed. And I loved Buster Keaton. I was a kid watching those Buster Keaton films. It was, was magical. And we got, we sat down to watch Wild Strawberries. And it was the Buster Keaton doors. This was the National Film Theatre. This was something I'd never been to before. I didn't know anything about National Film Theatre. And suddenly I was watching this Bergman film, which I have to admit, Wild Strawberries, very hard film to watch if you're a 14 or 15 year old. It's a film that I adore now. But when you're introduced to Bergman, I think you want, you know, that's a tough one because yeah. it's so much about... And also at that age, I think you have, you're very keen as a film goer and you want to tick off all these movies, but maybe your keenness is not quite matched by your intellectual yeah. capacity. Uh, and I think one of the things we do now as we go back, and this is one of the beauty of having these DVDs and having downloads and everything, is you can go back and watch some of those films yeah. that we saw in the Rex or the NFT then and, and think, wow, what did I see in that film? And sometimes you think, what did I see in that film? And other times you think, oh, how could I have forgotten how majestic this film was? Well, there's no um, reason for a 14-year-old to love Wild Strawberries. Well, it's a hard one. But the reason, and I would go as regularly as I, as I could, and I'd watch all the odd films, like Steve Waskin films and Hollywood classics like Cary Grant and things. And the NFT program was great. The only problem with the NFT, and it did have an amazing program, and I adored it, was there were snobs. I remember going there once with a friend to see a Bunuel double. Bunuel was all about humour. And he started giggling. It was a film called The Milky Way. And someone told him to be quiet. They said, shush. Yeah. And I thought, you can't shush somebody in a Bunuel film, for God's sake. You're not getting it. And the NFT was like going to pray. And it was like going to sort of love cinema to a ridiculous level of, I suppose going back to the idea of sweets and confectionery and hot dogs. And, you know, cinema to me was also a socialising thing. It was a way of expressing your enthusiasm for the film. Sure, yeah. I mean, that's and, what we're trying to celebrate here. It's, it's an yeah, experience, isn't it's it? It's an experience. And sometimes you might not love the experience because people are being, you know, if you go and see a film on 42nd Street, for instance, like when we saw Company of Wolves the first time screening 42nd Street, it was a tough experience because people were shouting at the screen and shouting to each other and shouting during the film. That's often not nice. But there is something about the National Film Theatre which was sort of looking down its nose at us that, oh, we wouldn't show films. Like, uh, you know, we wouldn't show a Wes Craven film here or we wouldn't show a... Rocky Horror Picture Show. George, yes, a George Miller film. They wouldn't say Mad Max, you know. Mm. Now, of course, you see the BFI South Pope with its four screens and its diverse programme and its flare season and everything else that it does. And we love it. It's great. The BFI South Bank's fantastic. But I'm talking about then with the NFT1, NFT2 and its programming of strictly art cinema that was for a discerning audience. And... I sort of kicked against that. And it was one of the direct inspirations for the Scala Cinema was to say, okay, we're going to show films at the NFT show, but we're going to celebrate cinema. We're going to have a colourful programme. We're going to give people the opportunity to enjoy these films. We're not going to say, because it was made in 1930s or 1940s, it's not funny. It's funny. Guess what? Philadelphia Story is a great comedy. Or Some Like It Hot is a superb movie. Come and laugh. Come and enjoy Some Like It Hot. Let's not come and study Some Like It Hot. Let's not come and, and suffocate that cinema. Let's let the cinema breathe. 
And that was the, one of the things I found about the NFT, which is why I love it and hate it at the same time, was that it was showing the movies I wanted to see, but showing them in an environment that was almost suffocating. And that was something that I think my generation of cineasts and, and movie lovers sort of changed. You must have been back there many times as a producer. Have they done a season of your films there? No, I have a programme cinema. I, actually, yeah. I was very happy. I did a season called uh, Aliens Over Hollywood in, I think, in 1970-something, 1980. No, sorry, it must have been the mid-80s, I suppose. Um, and they've shown loads and loads of my movies, and I've done lots of talks there, and, and I and I love them there, and I love the staff. Cinema wasn't really being celebrated until, I think, probably until the late 80s and early 90s when both the British box office and British cinema, I'd say films like The Crying Game, Train Spotting distributors studio canal and and Artifish and curzon and and picture house you know people are starting to expand into more fun ways of programming secret cinema all these things that are going on now were kind of the things that we were doing at palace way back in 82 83 and i think cinemas themselves are now places where people congregate more more of a social event again as it was probably in the 40s and 50s in the uk Stephen, it's been an absolute pleasure. Someone should make a movie of your life, surely. I don't know if it would be that interesting. <laughs> I think it would I be. I think it might be for the I first think it's inspirational. Minutes. I think it's amazing. <laughs> Maybe it's not something you'd want to do, but no, I know, don't, no, pass no, it on no. to someone else. Um, thank you so much for speaking to us once thank again, you. talking about the National Film Theatre, the new art in Los Angeles, and the Rex, a.k.a. the Screen on the Green in Islington, and Cinema Snacks as well. Thank you so much. Thank you, James. The mighty Stephen Woolley. I keep telling him he's got to write his memoirs because he has the greatest stories, the greatest memories of what is, and this really is no exaggeration, a life in movies. Hanging out with him is just such a treat. We were in his boardroom at his office in central London when we recorded that, a room full of props from his films. Got some pictures of them actually on social media right now at Cinema Stories Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. And we will be back for another series of Cinema Stories very soon. So keep in touch, watch this space, and thanks for listening to Series One. Mm-hmm.